So we pray for that. So turn with me, if you will, to First uh, Peter. This is going to be lesson number seven. I admittedly am doing, doing this teaching in a, a little unorthodox way. Instead of going verse by verse chronologically, I've chosen to uh, sort of do this because it's sort of difficult to outline. I've chosen to do this uh, from seven foundational imperatives that are in the book. There are many other imperatives, but I'm choosing to use the seven that I have mentioned. And we are in, on imperative number three. Uh, that imperative is found in First uh, Peter. Uh, it is found in First Peter chapter two, verse thirteen. We started it last week, uh, and that imperative was that we should, uh, as believers, submit ourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And we talked about this uh, commandment. Of submission to government, we covered it. I think in, think in great detail. Uh, remember the key to this, and what Peter does as the Holy Spirit uh, writes this scripture uh, using the using the means of men. Uh, we see that he is going to take a, a broad view of government in our reaction in civil order and society, and then he's going to. Further breakdown submission, which we're going to talk about today between an employer and employee, between a servant or a slave and his master. And then we're going to go into family relationships between a husband and a wife. And so we're going to look at this imperative again today under the category of submission. Remember, the most important thing we talked about last week uh, without fail is Submission, uh, as we defined it, is an attitude of the mind, and it is a learned behavior, and it is a decision made, and it, there is a sense of urgency to it, as we talked about last week. But mainly, it's a voluntarily, a voluntary acceptance of, of a position of obedience to, to a superior authority. I'm going to uh, mute everybody because we're getting some uh, some people got life going on. So I'm going to mute if you need to speak. Please unmute yourself. But uh, uh, we said that this is what submission was, and it is a work of grace in our hearts. It's not natural to us as as failed, flawed human beings with depraved hearts. We fight it, but as God works His grace in our hearts, we can voluntarily submit for the Lord's sake. Talked about that in great detail. That the motivation for submission is not because we necessarily agree with everything that's done in government. We certainly don't, but it's motivated by loyalty to Him. It's motivated by the fact that we don't want to bring shame to His name. We don't want to do anything that would uh, black cause our opponents. Uh, the lost world to blaspheme him because of our action. We don't want to inflict further persecution on our brothers and sisters in Christ because of our failed obedience to this command. So that's what we talked about. And then he sort of opened it up by obedience and submission. We put the silence, foolish and ignorant men. And then we, he broadens that, that we're to honor all men and that we are to uh, love the brothers, fear God, and we're to honor the king, and we close with that. And and uh, so as a uh, warm-up to today, we're going to be talking about a, a different uh, submission, and it'll be the same principles, and it's the same attitude of the heart, but it's just the only difference is that it's towards someone different. And it's uh, more of a, instead of the big umbrella, we're going to uh, be more specific uh, as we look at this. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 18, uh, the first thing we're going to look at is submission to masters as we uh, continue this imperative. So if you'll let me read this, uh, chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but to the harsh. For this is commendable. It is because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Well, what credit is it to you if you were beaten for your faults? You take that patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take that patiently, 
This is commendable before God, for to this it is to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what he did, he, he committed himself to his Father who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So we see in this first section uh, submission to the social order and submission to our masters in the flesh. Now, uh, I wish we were together on this one because I'm quite sure there's going to be some uh, emotion, and I'm quite sure that uh, some of you would love to uh, relate what you're thinking, uh, probably easier in a in a in person setting. But this section is going to be over our uh, relationship to our employers, or we're going to get into what it is. But just want to give you a little background. The scripture does not prohibit slavery. Slavery is not an institution of God, but it is a man-instituted, uh, uh, instituted by man. Scripture does not forbid it as it was, but Scripture is, is obviously against all evil it is within the realm of slavery. Scripture is looks forward and looks at the condition of men's hearts. And Scripture, although it doesn't condemn slavery, it condemns the the harshness of it and the injustice of it and the hate and the and the and the and the cruelty of it. So when we get into this topic, I just wanted to understand that slavery is not instituted by God. And as a matter of fact, it condemns the realities that exist within slavery. And the scripture has been, over the last 5,000 years, has been at the forefront of really uh, progressing men so that ab- slavery would be abolished. We see in, at the very beginning, we see that the patriarchs had slaves, they had servants, and we see that the nation of Israel Within the nation, they themselves had slaves within their own community and with their own tribe. But the scripture is very careful to make sure that within this institution that man has set up, that there is fairness and there is love and there is charity between the one who owns uh, people and one who is master over people. So if you'll turn with me as we start this to Exodus 21. And as I said, Scripture is at the forefront of abolishing the inequities of slavery. If you look at history, of course, you know from uh, from about 1780 to 1830, a, a gentleman giant who was in, in a, a parliament in England, uh, William Wilberforce, for 40 years, he desired the abolition of slave trade and slavery itself. And he worked in conjunction for 40 years. And finally, in the early 1800s, I think 1833, slave trade and slavery was abolished. And he worked in conjunction with some of the great men of the faith during that time. Uh, John Newton, who was a slave trader before Christ saved him, and others were instrumental. And we know at the time of Lincoln, that slavery was abolished uh, in uh, the Emancipation Proclamation of uh, January 1st, 1863, and has been a uh, hasn't been a part of. Uh, we haven't had slavery in 150 years in this country, so I think it's apropos as we look at this, as we look at the current events. Uh, Bob Johnson, who uh, used to be the owner of Black Entertainment Television. He came on this week and said that we we should have slavery reparations of $14 trillion. You should give every 
uh, African American, 44 million of them, each $350,000. And so I wish I was able to communicate with you your thoughts about that. But uh, even today, this is an issue uh, that is uh, divisive in our country. Uh, but uh, so this has been going on for 6,000 years and it will continue because of the slave trade, because of sex trade, everything that's uh, under this. But look at Exodus 21. Uh, this is the laws of, uh, of uh, Moses written by God uh, regarding this institution of slavery uh, and this uh, and having slaves and that type of thing. But this is the uh, conditions uh, that is uh, that is the biblical conditions and the attitudes of our hearts towards service. Look at 21 Exodus. Uh, these are the judgments which he set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh he shall go free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, he shall and he has born sons or daughters. The wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go back to himself. But if the servant says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I won't go free, then the master shall bring him to the judges. They shall bring him to the door, to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And we just goes on and on about the the love that should be shown and the uh, and the the respect that should be shown and the way that a, a servant should be treated uh, by his master. So uh, scripture, although it didn't uh, condone it, 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 it allows it uh, in these various situations. So we see that as an introduction. Uh, uh, as we look at this, uh, verse 18, servants, the word servant there is not the typical word for a slave. Uh, the word is uh, is typically uh, doulos, which does mean servant, or as John MacArthur says, it's particularly slave. But this word servant is a little less harsh. Uh, it carries with it a little different uh, attitude. Uh, it's really supporting this phrase of a, a household domesticate. It's a, it's a word that uh, is only used four times in the scripture regarding slaves, so it's not quite as uh, a perception of harsh as you would see someone who works outside in a field or forced labor outside in the heat subjected to that. But this is someone who is a, a household servant that is more uh, closely uh, in relation to the, the family of the master. So in this term, it's uh, uh, make no doubt about it. Uh, this person is owned by the master and is controlled by the master, but the but the attitude is more of a servile relationship and not quite as harsh. And so we see this, uh, this use of this uh, word in the Greek in uh, four other instances in scripture. I'm going to give them to you, but I'm not going to take the time to look at all of them. Uh, but uh, you would find that word, this domestic servant uh, in uh, Luke 16, 13, Acts 10, 7, and Romans 14, 4. Uh, along with it here in this text, but I do, will read one. Uh, let's look at the one in Romans, uh, Romans 14, 4, uh, as we see this word, uh, servant as a domesticant, uh, a household domesticant, uh, 14, 4. As we look at this, uh, this verse, uh, we see it in 14, 4. Of Romans, my hands are sticking together here. Let's go 14.4, Romans. Scripture says, Who are you to judge another's servant? That is a domestic and household. To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So that's the, the verbiage of the Greek there. Uh, and that's really what it means. And as we look at this, uh, the scripture says, we go back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, uh, we see uh, it says that we should uh, submit to our masters 
uh, with all fear. That word generally means, uh, is a, is like I said, it's an attitude of respect to the position that the master has a, over you. And it's a voluntary uh, acceptance of his position over you. And it's, uh, and it's the attitude we're to have. It's what Paul says in Ephesians, uh, that we're not to just obey our masters to be a men pleaser, but we're to do it out of a conscience toward God. And we're to do it as we are voluntarily submissive to where God has placed us in his sovereignty and where we are. We understand that all things we, where we are in life is, is a part of his divine plan for us. So Peter would tell the servants, those who were under bondage uh, during this oppressive time within the, the Roman government to understand God is controlled in it, understand that he's placed you here and to have an attitude of, of respect. And he says, not only should we respect those that are good in general, those masters who have a, a kind uh, inner dispensation toward us, a disposition toward us, but we're also to submit to those who are harsh. That word is to those who are crooked, to those who are bent, to those who are morally perverse, and to those who are cruel and unfair. So scripture tells us that we're to submit to them, even if they are cruel and harsh and unreasonable. And, and then it says in verse 19, this is commendable. That word commendable is a fascinating word. It's the same word we get from, uh, from, from grace. It's a noun, uh, charis, C-H-A-R-I-S. And it literally means, uh, that, uh, it's, it's thankful that we're to have this attitude of, uh, submission to our masters. It is a, an attitude that it is acceptable before the Lord. It is beneficial to us that we should have this attitude. Uh, one commentator says, the word commendable means that it is a mark of grace or it is a gift of grace that you are able to willingly submit to a master and it is pleasing to God if your attitude toward your master is that way. Anybody have anything to comment about the first 10 minutes of our discussion this morning, whether it be slavery, whether it be the attitude of the heart toward a master. I've unmuted you. You are free to speak. Anybody have anything to say about this? Have anything to say about this? Come on, guys. Anybody have anything to say? Well, it's always easy to submit when you are walking in step with those people. It's it's the test of our faith when you aren't walking in step, let's say with the boss or somebody. So then that's where God is saying, okay, this is the test. It's easy over here, but now maybe there's a new supervisor. Maybe there's a new person in charge. Maybe you go to a different company and there's the conflict. And then you have to say, okay, God, I'm submitting to you. You have me here. Now give me the grace, the ability to submit to this person that's in authority over me. Excellent. We probably all have been in that situation where one person is easier to submit to than another. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent point. Anybody else? This is not just a slave master. This is employee, employer. This applies to us today. An attitude of our heart. Anybody else? Great comment. I think from a slave standpoint, because of the things that's going on in this country currently, we might have a tendency when we read that to assume that this is a racial issue where it's not. Uh, because slaves were everything from lawyers to doctors to everyone else that had a debt that a master accepted. So we kind of, when we're in the biblical situation, when you look at this, we want to kind of think it. This is not a racial thing. Excellent point. We discussed that last week. This isn't racism. This isn't a racial comment. This is uh, ethnic groups uh, uh, getting along in Christ, and uh, we made good comments. Anybody else? I think, too, Don, uh, 
with reference to our uh, our lifestyle here with our employers, employees, the overall is that that same relationship exists with God the Father because we are no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness and slaves to him. And I think that's our, our mindset we need to have when we apply that grace to others. Excellent. See, y'all are going with it. I'm glad. Good. Anybody else? I have a question. Okay. Um. So would all of this, you know, submitting to masters and submitting to those in authority over us, isn't it? like a training ground for who we are in Christ, for what God is sanctifying us in to be toward him? I think that's a very excellent point. It is, as we're going to get into it, we do it uh, for the Lord's sake. We do it uh, to silence foolish men, as we talked about that last week. We are about to get in because he's our example. And we are about to get into the fact, as you've already sort of uh, alluded to, Sheila, that we do it because what he's done and who we are in him. And as he submitted to his father, we are to submit to him. And uh, excellent points. Yes, it is a training ground. And it is uh, it is uh, the submission of an attitude of submission is the evidence that we are in Christ. and that We understand the, the connectivity between uh his sacrifice for us and who we are in him. So excellent points all. Anybody else? Anybody else? I'm going to mute everybody again and uh, commence again, and we'll do this again. Uh, as we look at this, uh, uh, we are uh, in verse 20. Uh, actually, we're in verse 19. Because of conscience toward God, one endures grief. That word conscience toward God, that phrase, uh, is very key. Uh, it means, uh, and I like what one commentator said. This would be uh, one of the commentators that, uh, that Keith turned me on to, uh, that is a favorite of Terry's, I believe. And it's, 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 the gentleman's last name is Hebert. Is that correct pronunciation? Uh, Terry gave me the thumbs up. He said that this conscience toward God that allows us to submit in submission uh, voluntarily out of a good heart uh, because of him. It says the reality of God in our life gives Christian conduct its true moral value. And so we see that uh, when God judges the motivations of our hearts, if we're motivated because of relationship to God, because of who we are in Christ, that's what gives our conduct its moral value. It's not a it's not an outward expression because we're afraid or we have to do it, but it's but it's the attitude of a changed heart that gives submission its moral value. And I like what that said. So this conscience for God, as we talked about last week, it's it involves all the things we talked about last week. It involves being careful not to blaspheme, give give our and enemies uh, an opportunity to bring shame to the Lord and because of our activities. So that's what it simply means, our conscience toward God. Uh, and so we'll look at that. And then it says, uh, uh, we understand what enduring grief, suffering wrongfully is. Uh, but then it says, of course, verse 20 doesn't need much explanation for what credit is it if you're beaten for your fault, you take it patiently. We understand that. I don't need to go over that. But, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is what is commendable for God. So when we understand that we do it for the right attitudes, for the right motives, uh, and we suffer wrongfully, that is what is thankful. That is what is an evidence of grace gift of our heart. Now this next phrase, for to this you were called. This participle modifies uh when you do good and suffer. So when it says verse 21, for to this you were called, that refers to the doing good and suffering. We are called, obviously as part of sanctification that Sheila mentioned, we are called to do good and that we are warned that we will suffer. Jesus said that in this world you will suffer persecution and Many, many, many texts tell us that uh, 
that the world is not uh, conducive to living a godly lifestyle. We're going to suffer grief and hardship for it and tribulation and persecution, but that's part of the process is of, our, of our sanctification. So, so when it says, for this you were called, that is referring to doing good and suffering for it. So that's what that means. And then it says, uh, I love what another commentator says, God has a plan for your life, and he carries it in the lives of his believers. Uh, and, this, and the motivation uh, for doing good is that we are following the example of our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. And it says uh, to that phrase, to this you were called because, because Christ suffered for us. And he's going to now, he's going to refer us to Isaiah 53 as he shows us the sufferings of Christ uh, in his uh, in his humiliation as he came to earth uh, to die for the sins of his people. Uh, but this phrase, because, uh, because Christ has suffered for us, uh, I like what John Calvin says. He says, nothing seems more unworthy and therefore less tolerable than undeservedly to suffer. But when we turn our eyes to the Son of God, his bitterness, our bitterness is mitigated, for who would refuse to follow him, Christ, as he goes before us? So we see this phrase, uh, because Christ suffered for us. This is, this is the phrase, this is the example, this is the focus of our hearts, because we follow of what Christ willfully did for us. And this, as we, as you really unpack this, as Keith would say, that he suffered for us. We're going to get into this in a second. This is a, this is a substitutionary atonement of Christ. But this for us, <coughs> fascinating word. Uh, it's, uh, the little word literally means when he says Christ suffered for us, that word literally means Christ bent over uh, the readers to shield them from danger. So this phrase, he suffered for us as he substituted his life for our life. He bent over us to cover us from danger, both in the, in the spiritual realm, of course, most particularly, but also in the physical. Uh, and, it's, and this is a, uh, obviously going to be a picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Uh, we read about this in multiple scriptures to which all of you are familiar. But uh, uh, if you will, talk about the sufferings of Christ, I want to specifically focus two minutes is on the scourging of Christ. Uh, you remember in Luke 22, uh, it would be found in 63. I'm not going to look at that, but it says it just, it just matter of fact says he was beat. Uh, before he was taken to the cross. That beating, as you're aware, uh, is what the Romans famously invented as scourging. And in that scourging, if you just want to picture in your mind uh, the, the suffering of Christ as he bent over for you, uh, this scourging involved a, a flailing, a ripping of his skin, a digging of the furrows in the back as it, as it prophesies in Psalm. Uh, it is generally done with, with bone and glass and it cuts into, and lots of folks died from these scourgings. But as we see this suffering, this is a reminder, the cross itself, uh, was horrifically painful and was horrifically a, 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 a vehicle of suffering, but the scourging before was equally, if not not even, uh, if not more difficult to, to endure than the cross itself. But we see both of these combined to see the sufferings of Christ as he substituted himself for us, as he bore our penalty uh, on himself, as he suffered uh, the, the justice, as he suffered the anger, as he suffered the wrath of his father. Uh, as he appeased that wrath against us and against our sins. So we see this, this phrase, he suffered for us. And we see that any comments about this. So, so this we're called to do good and we're called to suffer because of what Christ has 
done for us. Anybody have any comments about this before we move on to him being our example and what that really means? Any comments? When it says he's our example, <laughs> you buy anything? Sally. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Didn't look up. Go ahead. I can't hear you. Unmute yourself, Sally. I've unmuted everybody, but I think you got to do it manually too for some okay. I know you got something important to say. Yes, ma'am. Well, I was just going to say the suffering on the cross was horrible. But the best, the worst of it all was what he suffered in that garden. And I think in my own life and in a Christian's life, when you recognize the fact that being his means for the sake of other people, when they do you dirty, you gladly take it on because your obedience is toward Christ. You are bought with a price, and your obedience is to him, not your agony over other people or what they do to you or anything that happens to you. And so... Uh, when we see what he suffered for us, we're going to have to go through that. All kinds of things in order for other people to come to Christ and to lay down our life for them because God loves them. And so he uses us as doormats sometimes. And we count it as a blessing because we know that he's using us. It's not just the happy five times, but it's the time when you're at the lowest because of others sometimes. Excellent. Thank you. As usual, great point. Anybody else? Anybody else? And so we see this as we read it further in the text. He leaves for us an example. The word example... Uh, I think the the reason why in the fullness of times uh, Christ came when he did, one of the reasons we see is because of the use of the Greek. And the Greek is so specific, it's so separate, and it's so picturesque in what this is. But when it says Christ is our example, the word is a hupogrammon. It means to underwrite. It literally means to trace. You remember when you was a kid? You used to put a piece of paper over your favorite drawing and used to trace it. And that was a perfect uh, reproduction of the original. And so when when it says uh, Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, he meant for us to be the perfect representation of how we should live our lives. And not only is it a perfect example, but he's the perfect guide that's going to govern our lives as we follow his example. So uh, it's it's just a beautiful picture of uh, we're to trace his life and we're to uh, look at his life as he lived a perfect sinless life. That's the life that we were supposed to live before the fall and before the great disconnect and the great curse of sin. And so we see Jesus lived the perfect life that we were intended to live. So we see him as an example, and we trace his life in every aspect, in his actions, and in his speech, and in his attitude of submission. And we see Jesus uh, uh, made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, right? So we see that as we see in Hebrews. So we see Christ uh, in his complete life of obedience, and he learned obedience through his sufferings. And as Sally has said, we learn the same way. And it's not about us. It's for other people. And that's what Christ's whole life was. And he humbled himself. And uh, he became of no reputation uh, to glorify the Father. And he is our complete replicate 
He's the one we should follow in all aspects of our lives. So I thought that was uh, significant, the word example, that we should follow his steps. And then he goes to Isaiah. So if you'll turn to Isaiah 53, a uh, uh, colossally important text about the uh, prophecy of Christ. And, of course, why he came. We're all familiar with this text, intimately familiar. He just simply quotes, uh, as he's speaking to Jews who would be familiar with the Old Testament, uh, he, he just basically quotes from from uh, Isaiah 53, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile internally, suffer. He didn't threaten. So we see this example for us, and we see Peter detailing the specifics of his sufferings. And you notice there's four things that Jesus didn't do, and there's one thing that he did. Four things he didn't do as we follow his example, and there's one thing that he did do. Look at the four things he didn't do. Uh, we see this in the text, and it's also found in Isaiah 53. The first thing he didn't do, uh, he committed no sin. So if you're writing these down, four things he didn't do. As our example, he committed no sin. And we know from Scripture, uh, multiple Scriptures, that it was completely necessary that Jesus had to be sinless. He had to be the unblemished lamb of God as a sacrifice so it would be acceptable to a holy God. If he had sinned, then he would have been like us and his sacrifice would have had no merit because he would have been offering a blemished, sinful life and that would have not satisfied the holy justice of a holy father. So in scripture, it's paramount we understand that, that when it says he had no sin, uh, we understand that that is literal. So we look at, if you go back to First Peter to make it easier, uh, we go to First Peter uh, 1.19. We've already looked at this, but again, it says, uh, talking about our redemption, we were, uh, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot, as it had to be to appease the wrath of a holy God and to be acceptable as a sacrifice. Uh, we also see many scripture. You can uh, remember John that we just finished in our class. Uh, John 8, as Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders in John 8, verse 46, Jesus speaking to them, he said, which one of you convicts me of any sin. And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Speaking to his impeccability and his perfection of life. If you'll look over to John 14:30, again, Jesus is now speaking uh, to his disciples. Uh, he says, uh, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Speaking of the devil and his in his uh, attempts to thwart the redemption of men, Jesus says, Satan, no one will find any sin in me. There is no uh, explanation. There is no uh, cause of, of, uh, of me not being triumphant in the cross because of any sin in me. Uh, and then we know that one of the most famous verses, one of the most important verses in Scripture uh, talking about the substitutionary work of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Christ, as our example, four things he didn't do. Number one, he knew no sin. He knew no sin. Now that's his action. Number two, what did he not do? He says there was not any Deceit in his mouth. Uh, that word literally means uh, there was nothing that was immoral. There was nothing that came out of an attitude of the heart. There was no lying. There was nothing. His speech was impeccable, as was the attitude of his heart. And nothing came forth out of his mouth that would, uh, that would bring shame to his perfection, to the holiness of his father. 
uh, everything was perfect in its morality. And so we see there was no deceit. Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the the speech that comes from a perfect heart. And so we see that's what we see. Obviously, that uh, there was nothing in him. Uh, so we see there was no sin. There was no deceit, which comes from a heart that's impure. There was nothing of that in Christ. And thirdly, we see that he didn't revile. Uh, he didn't revile. That word simply means he didn't pile up abusive vile language in response to his suffering. He didn't curse. He didn't threaten. He didn't uh, wish uh, anathema on his on his accusers. Uh, he did not uh, speak out of a filthy heart. But he uh, and so he didn't pile up the action, which is a result, of course, which would have come from an impure heart. But he did not have one, obviously. And then uh, the fourth thing he didn't do, he didn't threaten. Uh, he didn't call on his angels to bring judgment. He didn't call to be rescued. He didn't call on the vengeance of God. Matter of fact, he said he prayed for his enemies. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So Christ is our perfect replicate, is, a, is our example. He didn't sin. He didn't have any deceit from the heart. He did not revile against his accusers, and he didn't threaten them, uh, although that could have been a, a divine prerogative, but that would have been outside the submissive will of the Father, so he did not do it. He allowed himself to be uh, uh, killed, and he voluntarily gave up his life as a ransom for his people. So we see the four things he didn't do. But what did he do? Uh, He did this, but he committed himself to one who judges righteously. And so we understand that that literally means that he handed himself over uh, to the Father uh, willfully, to accomplishes the purpose purposes for which he came. Anybody have any comments about that section? Any comments about that? And then the Peter through the Spirit. Anybody have any comments about that? I was thinking uh, throughout the Gospels, we would hear or we would read, we do read, of how Jesus would say, it's not my time yet. It's not time yet for the son of god to be revealed and so he we see his unity with the father there uh because he knew he knew when his time was going to come but yet when we as sally mentioned in the garden he had to then yes he was equal with god but then he had to submit because of what was going to be coming very shortly he was going to suffer for and take the sin upon him and he came to that point where he said, okay, not my will, but thine be done. And so that's, that's the ultimate in the submission that we see. That's right. And it's also, as, as, as Sally animated, the struggle in the garden was the separation that he knew he was going to have with the father as he's become a curse. And he's, it's the first time in eternity past and, and, and will be the only time. Uh, even through eternity future, that there is a separation as, as, as he becomes a sacrifice for sin and all the wrath of the sins of God are poured on him. And so he is he's separated from, he is forsaken by his father. Yeah. So all that pressure, all that mental stress, uh, I believe, uh, as Sally pointed out, is was a horrific part of the suffering, not only the physical, but the, but the emotional and the spiritual. So good points all. As we see that, and then uh, Peter just reiterates again uh, the substitutionary work. This is important doctrine. We know about it. Uh, for time's sake, I'm going to quickly go over it. I want to get to this uh, next part of submission. But we see verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. This is a primary a core of the gospel, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He would bear penal judgment, that he would bear, uh, in a a one-time act, he would bear the sins of his his people. He was punished for their sins. He bore their punishment, and he satisfied uh, the holiness of God. He took the penal judgment. He took the separation from God. 
he identified with our sins and, and he took the blame. And so we see this, what Christ did for us. Uh, uh, and so because of what he's done for us, everything I've said, we see this. We, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. So we see uh, one of the reasons why, of course, he died to reconcile us to himself, that we may repent and turn from our sins. But the opposite side of that coin is that we may live for righteousness. He not only died to rescue us, but he died to to for a people that would live their lives in, in submission and obedience to him for his glory. So when it says the why, why he died, uh, one of the particulars of that is that because we might live for righteousness. Uh, and so we see that as, as Peter emphasizes that we may live for righteousness. Any comments about living for righteousness? And one of the, the products of living for righteousness is that we die to sins. And as Terry has is, uh, is, is taught us in Romans 6, uh, that dying to sins, which we see in Romans 6, is uh, it means many things, but it means to be off from. It means to have no part in. It means to be separated from. Is It means that we reckon ourselves dead and we no longer exist in the same uh, relationship. We've been freed. We've been alienated from our sins. The relationship we used to have when we were children of disobedient and dead, that that relationship has changed now that we're reconciled in Christ. And we are freed from the power of sin and the demand of sin, and we're enabled to overcome sin as the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and because of the work of Christ in us. So we see that as part of living to righteousness, that we're freed from sins and we're no longer captivated or dominated. And in fact, there's, an, a, there's a promise in Romans 6:14, and that promise is sin will no longer have dominion over you. So we see that's part of living into righteousness. We have a new relationship. Any any comments about that phrase? Uh, live for righteousness, dying to sin. Any comments about that beautiful core gospel theology? And this is what enables us to submit. Okay, so we understand that. And it goes on to say, uh, we've been healed by the stripes. Uh, we've been healed by the strife. One commentator said, there's a restoration of divine fellowship. The doctor suffered the cost. The sick received the healing. I love that. Uh, so we see that we've been healed, uh, and, uh, and we're no longer strained sheep. Do you love that phrase? We're no longer strained sheep. You know, sheep is one of my favorite metaphors in all of Scripture. It goes uh, throughout the scripture. One of our fa- everybody's favorite psalm is the, uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. We're familiar with that. This, this picture of a compassionate overseer, one who comforts us, one who leads us, one who protects us, one who has our best interests in heart. So we see that we've returned because of the work of Christ. We're healed spiritually, and we are able to, that word literally means we're able to repent and turn about, and we're able to turn toward him, our shepherd and overseer, our episcopos, the one who watches over us and protects us. And it just reminds me, if you remember John 10, that he's the good shepherd, that he lays down his life for the sheep, and that uh, he is the door of the sheep, and that uh, he knows his sheep, the sheep know his name, and the sheep will come to him, and no one can separate the sheep from the love of God, and no one can pluck the sheep out of his hands. This beautiful metaphor that he is our shepherd, he's the good shepherd, he's the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, so we see him in his work on the cross as he draws men to himself, and we see this so uh, you can read about that in Ezekiel 34 if you want to see 
another metaphor of him as the good shepherd. Any comments about that? Tom, whenever uh, whenever it says that we might live to righteousness, and then even yeah. the part after that where uh, we're healed by his stripes, it, to me it also would mean that with with that, God sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us. And that is part of the way that we can live to righteousness. You know, it's, it's the only uh, way, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. So to me, the sending of the Holy Spirit through Christ's death was was our healing, you know. Excellent. Good point. Oh, thank you for your support. Good. I'm glad you know the scriptures well. It's encouraging. Any other comments about that? And the next one, I do want to get into this because I have uh, big plans for next week. Uh, but uh, uh, the next or the next layer of submission is going to talk about the social structure within a family. Uh, the same principles are going to apply. The same voluntary submission. Uh, applies and apply to the family structure uh, as, as Paul breaks it down from the, the big picture to all men to, to the employee employer slave relationship uh, now he's going to talk about the family and he's particularly he's going to call to remind those Christians who are unequally yoked in their marriages and he's going to talk about uh, God's way to bring about a repentance and an unrepentant uh, uh, spouse is life. And we'll look at this. Look at First Peter 3. We'll read the first seven verses. And this is going to be the last section of submission under this imperative three. Wives, likewise, that likewise means just like we've been talking about within the government, same thing we've been talking about with the employer, same Attitude, wives, submit to your husbands, even if some don't obey the word, that they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting fine apparel on. Rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in God's sight. For in this manner, the former times, the holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands as Abraham, as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid, with any terror. Husbands, dwell with your wives with understanding, giving honor to your wife as to a weaker vessel, as being heirs together with the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So in this final uh, teaching on submission, Peter, as directed by the Spirit, points us to the most important relationship that we have on this earth, and that's our family relationship. And particularly, we see this institution of marriage. And so we see the importance of order uh, within this uh, this construct. And we see, first thing we see uh, is that uh, the Spirit admonishes wives uh, to submit to their husbands. Uh, this has been a, a bane of many women over the years. This has been a this has been the torch that likes feminism as they try to use this. But this really, uh, this scripture teaches us that men and weak and women are equal before God. This is not uh, that women are inferior anyway. Matter of fact, I would argue from my wife and from others of you who have better spouses that they are superior to us in many ways. So this is not a, this is not a, uh, uh, an object lesson that men are superior to women. They obviously are not. This is not a, this is specifically referring to the role that God has ordained uh, in the marriage. And so when we, when it says submit to your husbands, wives are called to submit to the Lordship of Christ as he has ordained the institution of marriage, as he has made as Christ is head over the man, so man is head over the woman. Uh, 
not in any superior way, but just as just the role God has ordained. And of course, there's going to be uh, there's going to be uh, there's going to, this is unnatural for women, and it is and it is uh, and it is obviously a part of the curse and part of the relationship challenges that we all suffered. Uh, at the fall of man and when we fell into sin. But uh, but women here are called to voluntarily submit, uh, not out of compulsion, but willfully submit to God's authority over them. Uh, and the purpose of this in this context is so that lost husbands, and in this day and age, there are many, because there is in this age, there are many lost husbands, and so one of the arguments Peter uses is that your submission to your husband, even though he's lost, your submission to him, uh, when that phrase, even if some don't obey, that's obviously they're lost, or it could be that they're out of fellowship with God, but it is by the, by the inner workings of the Spirit in a woman's heart as she voluntarily submits, God will use that to change the unbelieving man's heart. And so we see that. Be submissive to your husbands, even if they don't obey, that without a word. I think that's interesting. That doesn't mean that women can't talk, but it literally means don't be preachy to your husband. Don't nag him about, I didn't go to church today, but by your loving disposition that comes from the Spirit of God, you win him over by your attitude toward him, ultimately, as you submit. So that's what the teaching is uh, in these first few verses, that we have learned by your conduct of their wives. So uh, God says through his spirit, wives submit so that your submission is a conduct your husband very well may come to Christ. That's not a that's a general statement. That doesn't mean every submissive wife is going to have their husband converted. It is a general rule of thumb uh, that God has ordained, and we see that. Now, uh, in detriment to our Pentecostal friends and to those who may be independent Baptists who have a who really misunderstand this scripture, let's look at this. Uh, this this part of this submission of a woman, uh, this this phrase, don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. It is not wrong for you to wear necklaces, jewelry, to do your hair, to put on makeup. That is not being prohibited here. Uh, some of our uh, fellow bro- brothers and sisters uh, misinterpret this scriptures and they say that women have to dress a certain way. This is really referring to uh, it's not an outward submission as displayed by what you do or don't do to your hair or, or make yourself up. It, he's talking about an inner disposition of the heart and then he explains this. It's the hidden person of the heart in verse 4 with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious. It's contrast to the outward, which is external, which is going to be corrupted, which is going to fade away. Uh, in contrast to that, the, the Holy Spirit is saying, I want your, your spirits within you, uh, the inter of who you are, uh, to be beautiful. That doesn't uh, fade away. And he's, he's, and he describes he describes submission uh, as having a uh, uh, this chaste conduct. This phrase literally means it's a hidden person of the heart, and it's incorruptible. It's uh, it's the purity of life and reverence from God that bubbles out from your heart that is converted and regenerated by God. So this inner beauty. This chaste conduct, this purity of life, it is a work of the Spirit, regeneration, because of the work of Christ. That is what is 
is what he's defined as submissive. And it's because of that that wives are able to submit to their husbands. It's not merely outward. And he says it's very precious in Christ's sight. It's precious to him because he's the author of it. And he is the originator of it. And he's the cause of it. So it is reflective of his work and it's reflective of the Father's will for his people. And so that's why it's precious in its It's beautiful to him and because it's his work as he refines us diamond and he, he takes away the impurities of our heart and as he works in each one of our lives. So basically, though, it boils down to uh, verse... Uh, uh, it's trust. Sarah trusted the Lord. She yielded to Abraham, called him, realized his head over her, called him Lord, but she does it because of God's work in her. And she's trusting God's that he knows best. It's exactly opposite of what the devil tempted Eve with. Has God really said, this submissive heart that results in reverence for God and his inner and his beautiful on the inside actually says, I trust you, Lord. I trust your plan. And that is what the, that's the beauty of it. And that's the source of it. Trusting in what God has ordained. And it's not rebelling. It's not saying, did God really say and, and not want to be under the control of God? It's saying, yes, Father. I listen, I obey, because you're changing the crisis. Any comments about that before I get into the uh, uh, into the man side of this? Any comments? I'll end quickly. Uh, for you guys that think you've gotten off the hook, uh, let me share with you that you are more on the hook than you can imagine. We are told to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We are to look at verse uh, verse seven. Husbands likewise. That phrase means we are to submit. Also, we're to submit to one another. We're to give preference to love our wives is to give preference to them. Now we're not talking about submission to our role as leaders. That's not what the scripture is telling us. When it says likewise. Uh, in, in the in the realm of submission, Scripture is not telling telling us men that we should relinquish our role as leaders in the home. Far be it. But He's telling us that we should likewise submit to our Father in heaven, realizing the role of the marriage is to is to be a metaphor for Christ in the church. So as Christ submitted to the Father, so we should submit to Him. And then we should submit mutually to one another in this institution that God ordained is marriage, okay? There should be a mutual appreciation. We both should submit to the Lordship of Christ. It is our duty as men to be sensitive to our wives, to their needs, and to their feelings. When it says, as to the weaker vessel, Again, referring to one particular aspect, and that's the, their physical strength is less than us. And that's the only thing that's referring to the physical. And it's saying we should preference our wives. We should treat our wives prefer, uh, pref, with preference. We should treat them preciously. We should honor them. The word also means, guys, we should be careful to maintain them. We should be careful to provide for them their necessities and the conveniences of life. So uh, if you think uh, the women have a particularly difficult task, men, loving your wives as Christ loved the church, we are to be mutually submissive and we are to show them preference over ourselves, putting their own needs before ours. And so uh, we are both as a unit, a marital unit, we are to live together in beautiful submission to the Lordship of Christ. And then it ends with, uh, we are uh, we are heirs together of the grace of life that our prayers won't be hindered. Literally means, uh, as a couple, 
We share equally the benefits of God's grace in our lives. We understand that it's a picture of Christ in the church. And that grace of life is not particularly, uh, specifically in reference to uh, salvation, but it's marriage. So we are heirs of the grace of life in this text, marriage. We as a man and wife, this is a grace in our life. Marriage is a grace in our life. And that is the the specific of this phrase uh, in this context. So we're the recipients of the benefits of Christ. And then it says, so your prayers aren't hindered. I love what one commentator said, and we all know this as men, and we know this as women, when there's friction in our relationship. Uh, look what, uh, uh, this is, Hebert actually said this. He says, a husband's failure to maintain a, a right relationship with his wife will cut off his practice of prayer so that he will hardly pray at all. So when we are not in right relationship with each other, but when there is friction because of mutual exclusion, uh, mutual concept that submission isn't accomplished, our prayers are hindered. Uh, that word literally means military term. Our prayers are blocked. They are cut in and on. That obstacles are in our way. Uh, there's a rut in the road when we are not in right relations with our wife in the area of mutual uh, submissiveness. Uh, A long-winded one today. I wanted to finish this. Anybody that have any comments, anything to offer or add? You are all unmuted, uh, but you may have to unmute yourself. But this is this picture of submission uh, within the whole realm from from social to civil to, uh, to family. And then we'll look next week at the doctrine behind it. It's because we are in Christ, because we've chosen. We're a royal priesthood. We're a peculiar people. And we've been set apart to give him glory in our lives. Uh, we'll talk about that next week. Anybody have anything to offer or add?